Our scripture reading for today is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the letter, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for and the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I, and I told them of the hand of my God, that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right 
or claim in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Last week, we ended with Nehemiah in prayer and fasting. After hearing about the condition in Jerusalem, of the city walls broken down and the gates on fire, I couldn't help but think of the parallels this Wednesday as rioters breached the halls of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. I want to ask you to continue to lift up prayers for the peace and for the rebuilding of this country and for the Church of Jesus Christ to bear a united, faithful, courageous, loving, and truthful witness to the gospel. Please pray with me. Lord of life, God of the heavens and the earth, some of us come today in weary bewilderment, processing yet another hard-to-fathom moment in a seemingly endless string of moments of sadness, of anger, of shock, and resignation. We ask your kingdom come. Be glorified. May your church in united surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ, bear good news and bring your word of hope and healing to the brokenness of our communities. Grant us wisdom as we seek your will. Purify our thoughts and embolden our actions that we may do what is right. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our reading this morning opens in the month of Nisan, which is roughly March or April in our calendars. This means that it's been about four months since Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem and started praying and fasting. During those four months, Nehemiah had specifically prayed that God would give success to him today, that God would today grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king. He prayed for success today, but he had no idea that God would have him wait for four months. I know that you've heard a lot about waiting in these last few months, waiting for Advent, for Christmas presents, for the Buffalo Bills to win a playoff game, for the new year, for a job, for recovery from illness, for a vaccine, for the results of contested elections, for the inauguration of a new administration, for an end to the pandemic. Waiting is hard. And waiting for God to answer a prayer or to fulfill a promise can be especially hard. Waiting in prayer is what the people of God do. Abraham didn't know he and Sarah would have to wait 25 years for the promised child. Joseph didn't know he would have to spend his youth as a slave and two years in prison waiting for his dreams to come true. 
Moses didn't know he would have to spend 40 years wandering in the desert, waiting for God to allow the people he led in the wilderness into the promised land. And David didn't know he would spend most of his 20s being chased by Saul and running for his life, waiting to become king. Even after the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. I mean, can you imagine? You just witnessed the resurrection. Wouldn't you want to go and tell somebody, everybody? But Jesus said, wait. So maybe comparatively speaking, Nehemiah's waiting of four months while drinking the king's wine wasn't so bad. Most people, of course, don't enjoy waiting, especially those who like to get things done as soon as possible and are frustrated by the latest delays and those who like to procrastinate. You know who you are. But there are a number of crucial benefits to waiting and waiting on God. And I want to just highlight two briefly today. First, waiting on God reveals to us the truth of our commitments. Sustained prayer over a long period of time tells us the depth and the genuineness of our commitments. Simply put, what we really care about, we pray about for a long time. It's like kids when they ask for a toy. I remember my kids would see a commercial on TV when they were little, when we used to watch TV, and they would want whatever was being advertised at the moment. They were marketers' dreams. But by the next commercial, they had forgotten all about it and would want the next thing. Occasionally, though, they would ask for something, like the latest game console, and they would ask about it repeatedly for months. When they did that, I knew it was something that they really cared about, that it was something they really wanted. It didn't mean they would necessarily get it, but my wife and I would at least consider it more seriously because we knew that the persistent asking meant that it was something that was important to them. Similarly, our waiting and asking God reveals the truth about ourselves, about our genuine loves. It shows what we really care about. Ask yourself, what or for whom do you pray daily? Perhaps you pray for your spouse or your future spouse or for your children every day. But I wonder, how often and how long do we pray for the kingdom of God or for the glory of God to be multiplied? How often do we pray for our church or for our missionary partners or for this country? A lack of prayer reveals our lack of genuine commitment and concern. You've heard the saying, put your money where your mouth is. Just as how you spend your money indicates and dictates where your love lies, so does prayer. Put your prayer where your mouth is. If you say something really matters to you, pray and keep on praying. Are you willing to keep on praying and keep on asking or will you move on to the next thing? Waiting in persistent prayer reveals and separates what is mere passing curiosities from our genuine commitments. So waiting reveals the truth 
about our commitments. And secondly, waiting provides an opportunity to work out our next steps. Imagine if Nehemiah was so moved by the report from his brother about the broken walls of Jerusalem that he immediately quit his job and rushed out to Jerusalem without any plans or resources. It would have been a complete disaster. But as he prayed, as he waited for those four months, he came to realize the complexity of the project and began to formulate plans of how it might be accomplished. Given his day, day job as a cupbearer, Nehemiah would know nothing about rebuilding a wall or urban planning or social mobilization. Maybe he's worked on some home improvements. Maybe he's remodeled his kitchen, but he's never led a construction campaign of such magnitude. He's probably never left Susa. And there is also this. According to Ezra 4, the king that he serves is the same king who had earlier given the executive order for the work of repair on the city to be stopped. Ezra 4.21 says, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt. The king stopped the work, and Nehemiah knows that the repair work can only be resumed by a new decree of the king until a decree is made by me. Nehemiah has to get the king on board, otherwise it's a non-starter. That's why he prayed, Lord, grant me mercy in the sight of the king. This waiting and praying allowed Nehemiah to solidify his own commitments and to formulate practical plans. Waiting on God's timing is not laziness. It's not resignation of letting go and letting God. It's trusting, but it's an active waiting. It's a time of preparation. And because he had those four months, when the opportunity finally arrived to speak to the king, Nehemiah was ready to answer. In fact, the four months of waiting and praying must have caused Nehemiah's emotions to unconsciously leak through because when he shows up for work that day, the king noticed his sadness. That is not how you show up to the king's party. It could get you fired or executed. So when the king notices and asks a series of questions, Nehemiah is genuinely scared. But he has also anticipated those questions over those last four months, and he's able to answer wisely, deferentially, and strategically. He chooses his words carefully, words that he has thought through and that he has crafted over this time of waiting. And as a result, he receives the king's blessing, his protection, his authority, and his provisions, and is now fully equipped to travel the two months or so to Jerusalem. When God doesn't seem to answer a prayer right away, it may be that God wants you to grow by more honestly acknowledging and assessing your own commitments and to begin the process of planning what you might do in light of those commitments. It's an opportunity to develop trust in God's perfect timing and to align yourself more fully into God's will. Now, when Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem, he does his due diligence. He knows that there are those who will oppose his work. And so he secretly inspects the walls at night and the gates 
and sees the extent of the damage and the work that must be done. But it must have also been a personally powerful experience to visit the land of his ancestors for the first time and to see it in such ruin. As he walked and as he rode among the ruins under moonlight, I imagine he would recall God's promises and cling to the hope as spoken through the prophets. Promises like that Judah will once again take root and bear fruit. Promises that there will be the voice of joy heard again in the streets of Jerusalem. And the promise that the city will be rebuilt and be like the Garden of Eden. Nehemiah had heard the testimony from his brothers and his companions, but now he sees it for himself. It's like when many of you hear a testimony from one of our mission partners or from our church about a mission, summer mission trip. You hear the stories of what God is doing in places like New Brunswick, West Virginia, the Dominican Republic, Kyrgyzstan, China, North Korea, Kenya, and maybe you get moved or challenged. So you pray and you make plans and you go yourself and you see for yourself and you inevitably come to understand and to empathize in a deeper way. For most of you, those experiences of personally seeing makes you more committed. And I think that's what happened to Nehemiah. So as the chapter comes to a close, he gathers the priests, the nobles, the officials, and others who will do the work, despite all the dis opposition that he will face. And he lays out a clear vision and the rationale for rebuilding the wall and of repairing the gates. He does not come to them as a distant Persian diplomat, but as one of the people who understands their situation. Importantly, he shares the testimony of how the hand of God has been upon him for good. And the people respond by rising up to join in the work. I just wanna make one reflection with you today. These days, it's quite trendy to study the book of Nehemiah as a model of leadership. For example, here's just a few titles that you can find on Amazon. It seems like every commentary on Nehemiah focuses on leadership as if there's nothing else to learn. Personally, I have not read any of these titles, but I have to tell you that I am intrigued by the title of one of these books by an old acquaintance of mine, Robert O, called Nehemiah Leadership. Korean style. Frankly, I'm a little scared to see what Korean style leadership might mean, but I hope to check it out sometime in the future. Certainly we can see that Nehemiah was politically savvy, brave, tactful, situationally wise, capable of detailed planning, of facing opposition, of casting a powerful vision, of waiting patiently, of strategic timing, of cashing in his political capital at the right moment, and on and on and on. He possesses many good qualities of a leader, as well as virtues and life skills that should be nurtured. Studying leadership with Nehemiah would be a fruitful study 
And I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. However, despite what all the many books on Nehemiah and leadership might suggest, Nehemiah was not really fit for this leadership position. He is not a professional construction manager. He is not an experienced governor. He does not possess the necessary skill set to oversee this sort of project. He's like Noah, who never built a rowboat, but was tasked with building an enormous ark. Or like Joseph, who spent his days in a prison and yet was called upon to develop a national economic plan. Nehemiah lacked the resume qualifications, but Nehemiah trusted God. He trusted that those whom God calls, God would also enable. Nehemiah is not trying to teach us the skills required to build a wall or how to mobilize a community or how best to complete some other project. He is not writing a leadership manual. As I said last week, this is a memoir, and he's trying to tell us something about his experiences of God. His concern is not about being a leader of men, but about being a servant of God. And we could label this second chapter of his memoir, The Good Hand of My God Was On Me. This is his fundamental point. After four months of prayer and waiting, when the king grants him all that he had been praying for, he credits God for the success. Verse 9, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then later, when he shares his testimony with the people in Jerusalem, he doesn't boast about his leadership or about his political clout. But again, he gives credit to God. Verse 18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. The king made it possible for him to travel to Jerusalem. The king gave him passports so that he could have safe passage under the protection of the empire. The king gave him the authority and the title of a governor. The king gave him his credit card to buy all the wood and timber that he would need. The king gave him a 12-year leave of absence from his job. But Nehemiah says that it was all because of God's favor. It was all because the good hand of my God was upon me. That's his testimony and that's his interpretation of his life and the events surrounding his life. Now, I know that someone else could look at the situation and argue that King Artaxerxes was not moved by God, but rather simply by political shrewdness. Historians tell us that during this period, neighboring Egypt had rebelled with the help of the rising Greeks. And so fortifying Jerusalem and Judah under the guise of returning ethnic groups to their homelands was just a smart military policy. Inserting a new governor and rebuilding the walls and garrisoning Jerusalem would shore up the Persian border and act as a buffer in case of war. That is a reasonable historical interpretation. It's not wrong, but it's incomplete. Faith sees more. 
and Nehemiah is able to reframe the historical political narrative into a theological one. He's not naive to the political realities, but he knows that there is a deeper truth beneath the surface of the decisions of kings. His faith teaches him, as Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is able to use the movements of empires to ultimately advance God's own hidden will and God's own kingdom. And this is our hope. God's good and perfect will will not be thwarted. Not by kings. Not by any opposition. What Nehemiah sees and what we need to see is that it's not just about what's going on in the news. It's not just about the actions of kings. It's not even about rebuilding a wall. There is a spiritual reality brewing underneath. And that reality is that the good hand of God is upon us. God's will is to extend favor and grace upon his people. That is God's will. And though there are enemies of God who are working to prevent that, it's all in futility. It will not succeed. It's obscured by English translations, but scholars have pointed out that there is a repeated use of the words evil and good throughout this chapter. Such repetition impresses upon us the good God wants for us and the work of those who oppose God's will. For example, the English words trouble and sad and sadness are all from the same root in Hebrew, meaning evil. Evil describes the negative condition that Nehemiah and the exiles experienced. In contrast, there is the good God desires for us. We see this word good appearing again and again in relation to what God wants. And so the opposition that Nehemiah and the people of God will face from their neighbors, whom we'll hear more about in the coming weeks, it's not just a struggle against political adversaries. It's about a deeper spiritual truth for the good that God wants for his people and those who oppose God's goodness. So when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant, when it displeased them, that is, it was evil to them, that that evil was what they wanted, because they opposed the good of Nehemiah, who had come seeking the welfare or the good of the people of Israel. That is a spiritual reality. Nehemiah came to seek the good of the people of Israel against those who sought evil for the people. And I believe we have a similar call to rebuild, to restore, to reconcile, to seek the good of the people in our communities. And we can do this good work because the good hand of God is upon us. There's no other hope. There's no other reason for us to even attempt the work without this confidence of God's favor. God is still in control. 
no matter how bad the circumstances may seem, God will aid those who are working in accordance with his will. As you look around, what do you see that needs repair, renewal, rebirth? God is calling you to pray for the welfare, for the good of the people in your life, to love your neighbors, and to fulfill the task of ministry that God is laying upon your heart. So let's seek together the good of our neighbors and our communities and build for good and testify together. The good hand of God is upon us. Pray with me. Lord, there is much in our world that needs rebuilding. And we confess that we have contributed to the poor and to the dangerous conditions that we see in the world today. Help us to see beyond what we see in the news. Help us to see with faith, with hope, your will, your good, your kingdom taking root. Help us to align ourselves with the movement of what your spirit is doing today. Help us to put on the full armor of God and give us the hope of knowing that those who oppose your goodwill are all doomed to failure. You are the Lord. You are sovereign. You have promised and you will fulfill those promises. So we pray trusting in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power 